historically, another important part is that China's used sports as a very diplomatic tool for diplomacy and proving itself on an international stage. You have people playing knowledgeable, understanding winter sports now more than ever before in China. But it's going to take, I think, really getting domestic leagues to become successful as standalone IT products for the fan culture and sports to really start becoming part of daily life. Even from the very beginning, the NBA was willing to invest in the, into the country and become part of the fabric for basketball in China. For an international sports property to think that all they need is to get a Chinese player playing their sport, and then, and then the millions will start rolling in, that's a little bit mis misguided and, and they're going to probably end up in a little bit of disappointment in the end. Welcome everybody to another episode of Ganbei. I'm your host, Art Dicker. And today, our guest is Greg Turner. Greg is founder of Shenzhen High Performance Event Management. Shenzhen High Performance Event Management manages and promotes events at STU Sports Park as the first wholly foreign-owned enterprise in China to obtain a cultural performance license. Hey, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Art, and also Jacob, of course. Yeah, Jacob is joining us as our uh, co-host today. We've done a couple episodes before. Jacob is intimately involved in the Gambe podcast, also as our producer. And Jacob, welcome to come on. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad to be here. I think it's going to be a great time. Yeah, it's a timely topic, that's for sure. And, and, and we have the perfect guest in Greg to come on with, especially with the Olympics coming up. There's a lot to talk about. So let's jump into it a bit. We're going to get into Greg's bio in a second. But I wanted to start off first with sort of the government push. In September of 2019, the China State Council released a circular on developing the sports industry. It called for coordinated efforts to build more venues for exercise, talks of converting space, more space for sports, including some tax breaks for companies in the sports industry and so forth. I'm wondering, Greg, what is driving this push from the government? Why do they care so much all of a sudden? Does it have to do with the Olympics and that's it? Or is there something else going on? I think to really answer this question, you actually have to look back probably 100 years. And that's actually to the founding of the Communist Party and, and Mao Zedong. And the first, first piece of writing that he ever got published was actually about the role of sports in the lives of Chinese people and, and, and how they need to improve and get stronger to become a stronger, more powerful nation. And that's a trend that's existed through the whole development of the Communist Party into the founding of the People's Republic, and then up until we are now, with different ebbs and flows at different times. It's, but it's been a constant presence in, in policymaking and decision-making in sports throughout the history of uh, the People's Republic. The other side of it that you got to look at as well is that historically, another important part is that China's used sports as a very diplomatic tool for diplomacy and proving itself on an international stage. So... What you see now with what's been released in 2019 is that they acknowledge that their development, their economic development as a country has, has, has reached a certain level. And now it's time for them to really start focusing on improving the lives of the, of, and the quality of living for the people in the country. And a big part of that is the sports industry. So on the one hand, you have them pushing to improve the quality of life for the people here. And on the other hand, they realize that, they, that to keep improving and growing the economy, they need to shift it to, from being just simply a manufacturing uh, economy to being something more service focused. And sports is one industry that they've developed, that they've identified to really try and help make that happen, where it's going to be a, fill, a pillar for the new, uh, new service economy. The two of those together, I think, plus then obviously the Olympics and some of the other um, international focused events that they have going, going on pre-COVID has really come together in this 2019 document to create what's hopefully going to be a very big and, and bright future for sports in China. 
Got it. That makes total sense. So it's really about about the economy as, as well, not just uh, people's health. Also, I'm sure that's a benefit as well, or the Olympics. But but yeah, like they've got a target to grow the sports industry. They've got a target to grow the sports industry up to four, five trillion RMB by um, 2025. So it's a big pillar. It's it's something that they really want to invest into, and that's sports manufacturing. That's the events. That's training. That's the kids' participation. The community sports. All that kind of stuff. Everything together. Uh, mm-hmm. Five trillion RMB. Greg, if you don't mind, could you tell us a bit more about yourself? Maybe something about how you found yourself in China and what piqued your interest as far as the sports industry in China? Sure thing. I moved over to China first back in 2000. I'd studied China as part of an international relations degree for my bachelor's degree and then decided after I graduated that I'd come over and just experience it a bit. So I first lived in Harbin doing a school exchange program there, just learning about the culture, hands-on taking everything that I'd learned in school and trying to trying to place it within a real life situation. Lived in Harbin for about four months. And then I moved to Beijing where I lived for about a year and a half, did a few internships there and then a couple other odd jobs before moving down to Shanghai. And about a year after I arrived in Shanghai, I, I, I met some guys from Canada and one guy in particular from Switzerland that were hockey players. And they just opened up the first ice rink in Shanghai. And we decided that we'd start trying to get something together to play a little bit, put a little bit of ice hockey together. And so from there, we founded a hockey club and I was a real driving force in the first few years of getting Shanghai's Ice Hockey Club up and running. And that got me on the radar to a few different sports agencies that were trying to set up then to help grow what was really at that point was just the basic sports industry, sports marketing industry. And so I joined an agency and we did some work at first doing some brand promotion stuff. So working with the likes of Coca-Cola and Adidas and Guinness and a few other brands just to help them help promote themselves to Chinese consumers through sports. After doing that for a few years, I ran a venue for the first time, which was Jiangwan Sports Center up in the north part of China uh, or north part of Shanghai, which was being converted from a 70-year-old municipally preserved monument to become an, a, a real part of the community there, where we had a, a gymnasium and a swimming pool and most notably a 40,000-person stadium with a grass field big enough for four football pitches, so a huge venue. And so I was on that for about a year, converting that into what I mentioned was a 70-year-old monument to becoming a real community, um, part of the community. And then from there, after wrapping up that project, I moved back to the agency side and we started doing more of our own IP type of work, where we ran some rugby rugby events and some motor sports events and, and different kinds of events that we owned and we operated, found the sponsors, sold the tickets operated the events totally together with the international organizing committees of the different sports. And then following that, I joined with a lady named Yang, who is China's first ever Winter Olympic gold medalist. She was a short track speed skater. I think she won gold in 92 and I want to say 94 or maybe 98. I'm not sure exactly when the second one came, but she had negotiated with the Shanghai government to take over management of uh, a full-size ice rink there, a full-size hockey ice rink there with 4,000 to basically become a hub for grassroots sports developments, winter sports development in, in, in downtown Shanghai. And I worked together with her on creating grassroots sports programs for ice hockey, obviously, short track speed skating, her interest, and then also figure skating, getting different people and getting different levels of kids involved with skating and 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 being involved with all that stuff as well. And then from there, I was recruited by the Li Ka-Shing Foundation to move down to Shanto here in Guangdong province, where Mr. Lee had decided to invest $150 million to build a NBA standard 
multifunction arena with an attached hotel and a swimming pool. And they brought me on to basically lead the, lead, that's the STU sports park. And they brought me on to basically supervise the construction from an operator's point to make sure that what was built is actually usable from an operator's point. And then also uh, once it was finished, to bring it online, to build the business plan, to build the operating plan, to recruit the team, to actually bring this whole venue to, to life. And then operated it for two years. And altogether, and the last year we operated, we had 50 events there, all different kinds from basketball to some volleyball on the sports side. And then also quite a lot of concerts. We had a music festival there, a MIDI music festival there. And then also some, also some like job fairs and some different kinds of events to service the students at the university where the sports park was located. I wrapped that up in about the end of 2019 or yeah, the end of 2000, 2018. And then did a little traveling, enjoyed a little bit of a break. And in October, I decided that I'd take this, this company that I'd set up to help with the sports park operation and turn it into something a little bit more where I wanted to help to, to bridge the gap between international event organizers and Chinese, Chinese officials or Chinese partners to help them deal with some of the problems that I knew that they all faced. And things were going gangbusters for the end of 2019, right up until the start of COVID, obviously. And that's put a little bit of a, a different kind of challenge into what I'm doing. And since then, it's turned more into a consultancy where I, even though China's borders are closed, I'm working with different companies, agencies, and brand rights holders to, to help them refine and improve their China strategy. So once the borders reopen, they're in a better position to come in and really take advantage of this policy that we just talked about from 2019. And that leads me to where I'm at now. Got it. Okay. That's a great story, Greg. And you have clearly have so much experience here to talk about all these questions. And that's, I can't, I can't even imagine like myself, because we were talking before the podcast started, we're about the same age, putting myself in that situation at that age and trying to build something that big from scratch with, and then bring, like you said, bring 50 events a year, which is basically one every day or one every week. Yeah, and, and, and that's just, I mean, you, you, did you have, what did you look to for uh, a blueprint to copy or how much did you have to figure it out as you went along? We were figuring everything out as we went along. <laughs> we were, in, we were, to be honest, like we were in a third tier Chinese city. And when I moved down there, there was no venue of any kind of scale or scope to host the kind of events that we wanted to do. So we weren't just opening up a new venue. We were opening up a brand new market. And if you're familiar with Shantou, it's the, it's the central city in a region of Guangdong province called Chaoshan, which is a very old traditional part of China, which is very insular in its culture and also in its way of thinking. You have a lot of billionaires all over the world that come from the region because they're hardworking and they're very self-sufficient and they make things happen. And those that leave the region tend to be very successful, but those that stay there tend to stay very, they're very conservative. So for us to come in there, and we had the, I had the vision from Mr. Lee to try and bring events that had never been to the region before. He really wanted the sports park to be a window onto the world to help to open up some of those eyes in, in the, the, of the people that stay in the region on what the world really is and what it has to offer and, and, and try and drag Shanto and Chaoshan into, a, into the more modern world. So we came in there with, we built the ticketing system. When we got, when we landed there and I tried to start building, the trying to start recruit ticketing partners to help us run our events. None of them were interested in coming to Chaoshan. So Damai and Yokao and all of the Chinese ticketing companies, none of them were really interested in it because they didn't see it as a market that was any potential. So we originally built our first ticketing system ourselves to run our events. And it was only after we'd proven that we could host an event of 5,000 people, fill the stadium, 
that then Damai came knocking on the door and saying, hey, well, maybe we can help you out. Maybe there is something we can work together on on this. And so that's just one example of every step along the way. It was a major push to try and make, get the sports parts. Not exactly like the line from Field of Dreams, if you build it, they will come. I guess you had to build it, but then you still had to get them, cajole them to come <laughs> a bit, especially yeah, some of the partners. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh. And the people. There was one of the first events we did there was a, a modern dance show from Israel. And it was really far out there in terms of its interpretation <laughs> of what it was, the message it was trying to create. And, and it was the foundation, Mr. Lee's foundation had a relationship with Israel so they could get this event in there for us. But still, I remember before the event, we managed to get, the, we filled the venue up. And before the event, it was so quiet in there. You could have honestly heard a pin drop on any point inside of the venue. It was so um, quiet. And then after the events, I was standing in the concourse, just chatting with people as they left and just trying to get their opinions on the events and what they thought. And I had one lady that I was talking to and, and she said, I had no, I have no idea what I just watched. I have no idea what I just watched, but I love the fact that it's in Chanto. I love the fact that I can see it here. And I, I really want to thank you guys for bringing this stuff to us. And I'm hoping to see more and more of it. So that was a really nice, you know, first impression for us that there was something there for us to build onto and create a, a, a successful venue. Let's turn it back to some of the historical perspective of what's going on behind, for example, why the government maybe has to make this push. It doesn't, it maybe never happened naturally, the sports industry taking off on its own. Is it, is all of this or some of this trace back to the development of sports in kids' lives as they grow up? And a stereotype, of course, is that kids spend all of their free time studying in these supplemental classes that all geared towards the entrance exam for college and, and other exams before that. Mm -hmm. Is it just never been play, a priority for kids when growing up? And is, how has that affected everything here? Well, like, again, I think you got to look at this, the history of it. Let's look back pre-80s, where society and culture was just such a, uh, under such upheaval all the time that there was just no time for these kinds of sports. And then through the 80s and 90s, and everybody's hustling, parents are away trying to find jobs in factories or build companies or doing whatever else there is. And kids are left with grandparents. And there's just no, there's just no time for, for, again, developing sports. I would never say, I wouldn't say that sports has never been a priority for the government. It's always been something that they've tried to get people into doing. They've just not necessarily known how. But now, again, as the country's evolved and matured and, and it's found more time to follow these kinds of more leisurely pursuits, it's getting a little bit better understanding of how to actually develop sports. So I think this this year, this past year has been really interesting for talking about youth sports and, and the role it plays in kids' lives because the Gaokao still exists and it'll always exist. But now you have a moment where it really is, sports is going to become part of what the ability of a kid to be active and be fit is going to be judged as part of their entrance exam. There's a real trend towards pushing towards that. So they're going to have to be able to find time to go out and, and play some sort of act, do some sort of activity. And then you look, you look at younger kids, maybe up until about 12 years old or 13 years old, there's lots of activities for them to do, lots of sports activities for them to do. And, and parents, they're getting more and more educated. Maybe they've been overseas Maybe they went to school overseas or they spent some time working overseas or even just traveling overseas. And they've seen how much sports is important to, to families and kids in the West. And they've experienced that. And again, they want to bring that back to their kids. There's still the barrier of the Gaokao, but you can start seeing little forays into this whole, this barrier, trying to find the, the weakness to get to let sports burst through for kids. It's, it's not a finished battle yet, but it's still going on and it's, it's looking better and better every year.
Yeah, and of course, in the West, this is something that when you're applying to colleges, right, there's, and this is going to lead into a question later on, but there's, it's a sign of being well-rounded, right? So in not just all kinds of extracurricular activities. And I think that other part of it, the sort of the, it seems like kids these days are inventing patents and I don't know how many of them are legitimate or not, but doing all these other things outside of the classroom. So I guess sports is, is naturally the next thing to, for people to place importance on, even in the, in, in the college entrance process. So that's a good, yeah. It's a good, yeah. and how, because, because that kind of segues with this idea of how Chinese view, view sports and especially team sports, because if they've spent so much time growing up traditionally in the classroom and so forth, does this affect the fan culture? Does this affect how they view sports later on when they're exposed to now at such a young age of the NBA or other sports? I, I think fan culture is a really interesting topic for China. So this is a really great question. For me, if I look back on my youth and growing up, uh, I'm from Canada. Ice hockey was by far my favorite sport, and I lived and breathed it with my dad. I have so many memories of being young and sitting in front of the TV or going to the Saddle Dome in Calgary and watching the Flames play and talking about it with him and talking about it with my friends and, and talking about it with other adults around me, uncles, aunts, that kind of stuff. Everybody around me talked, knew something about hockey. So you don't have that kind of community here where you have my grandparents. I can talk to my grandparents about hockey. You don't have that kind of community here where everybody is a fan of something. Sports just hasn't played such a big role. And the part of that is is the situation with domestic sports. An older person is more likely to probably follow a sport that they can see live or can see in their daily life rather than having to wait up until two o'clock in the morning to watch a game in Europe or in, in North America. So you just don't have that same community of fan fandom that you do in the West. That's starting to shift. I think the NBA is doing a really great job of that and, and trying to create create ways that fans here in China can still stay connected with the game, even though the game times are maybe not the best for live watching. And some of the other sports are trying to start following that. But it's going to take, I think, really getting the domestic leagues to become successful as standalone IP products for the fan culture and sports to really start becoming part of daily life. A huge difference that in the West or even kind of more so just America specifically, the United States, collegiate sports. So I just got back from the college football national championship and that's 67,000 people from Georgia and Alabama traveling 10 hours to Indianapolis to go watch college athletes play a sport. Pretty unique, I think, in the sort of level of fanaticism in the United States, but is there any type of fandom? You've mentioned that older people especially would prefer in China to watch a sport that they can watch on their own time, any, any kind of day. You also mentioned that if a person has a connection sort of to a local sport, so domestic sports, things of that matter, are there any pockets of fandoms for collegiate sports or club sports? So there actually is a, a basketball league for college sports in China. It's called the CUBA or the China University Basketball Association. It's a regional tournament that involves the southeast region, the central region, the northeast, the west, breaking it up like that. And each, basically all the major universities organize teams to put into this. And they go out and they recruit players and from high schools and try and build the best teams they can. It's a commercial project. So last I heard, the rights are owned by Alibaba. And they do all the production for video and they broadcast all the games online with commentary and everything like that. And then they recruit sponsors to join it. And they really try and create a commercial atmosphere. But the problem with the event is that or with the tournaments is that it's very it's very biased in the way the teams are structured. Whether that's a traditional model where some of the big universities like Beijing Dashui or Guangzhou, Sun Yat-sen University, these kinds of schools, whether they have 
priority access to athletes and can recruit to better players faster is a big thing. And also, there's also an issue with the referees, to be honest, in that the referees tend to favor the teams that are favored to win because they they have better relationships with those schools or for whatever reason. So for a school to come in that doesn't have a, a good relationship or a, a good history in, in the tournament, it's very difficult for them to, to change their position. But one, one thing that we did try and do when I was in Shanto, another project that was going on there from the foundation is there was a sports reform project. And we were trying to basically take their men's basketball team that was competing in the CUBA and try and change it into a, a NCAA model where this, the athletes' grades mattered as much as, the, as what they could do on the basketball court. So where most of the schools would bring the, bring the players in, and all they were responsible for is basketball. And if they attended classes, great. If they didn't attend classes, didn't matter. They, the students at Chanteau were really held accountable for both their academic performance and also their performance as people on campus. They needed to be well-mannered and, and be, behave themselves and not just act like a bunch of jerks that were on the basketball team. Through this, they, the team was actually quite successful after a few years of development, where I think it reached the top 16 of the national tournaments. And it also was the championship, the champion or the second place team in the Southwest Division. So that was quite a good accomplishment. But even with that, because of the nature of the CUBA and some of the challenges that its structure presents, when you're going into a game and you already know who's going, 99% of the time you already know who's going to win, it's difficult for a fan to really start supporting it. So even the students at the universities, they didn't really care about the teams in the CUBA because why do you cheer for a team when you know what's going to win or if what's going to lose? Um, hopefully the example that the, the Chantwee University showed with on how a team can be reformed and built properly to be competitive and be responsible to its players can show a little bit of reform initiative that, that the whole country can take on. And maybe we can see some of these other universities doing the same thing and we'll see what happens. Yeah, that's extremely interesting. Obviously basketball is a lot more popular than American football, but I will say that I was, when I was a student at Tongji University, I had joined the American football club and compared to what you're talking about with the CUBA, this was very much just a small club team, barely enough Chinese participants to field a full team, at least at Tongji. They, we would play teams from around Shanghai and from around China that would have larger teams, bigger rosters, but it was clearly not very successful or a very popular sport or very popular league as far as at the collegiate ranks. But as far as American football goes. It's been slowly but surely growing in popularity in China, clearly not to the extent that the NBA has, but there is the CNFL. The NFL has, at least prior to the pandemic, made an, quite an effort to increase their presence in China. I know they've sent some, some top personalities over. I think Russell Wilson came over at one point to, to run a few kind of training camps or something like that. There, there are club teams popping up at universities. There was a popular YouTube series from a guy from Barstool Sports where he played at a, in a American football club team as a quite a popular series. But <clears throat> American football obviously is a very physical sport. And I think there's at least for foreign, there's a stereotype that it's often believed that Chinese are not necessarily interested in those high contact, high physicality sports, especially when you even in the West where it's been popular, there is a, a rising concern about issues with head traumas, issues with youth football, with the rise of more information on CTE, things like that. But do you think that 
there is a legitimate path forward for a sport like American football or any other high physicality, dangerous, if you want to call them dangerous sports in China? I, th- I think that it's looking specifically American football. The first mm-hmm. challenge that it has is that it shares the same name with rugby in Chinese, right? Mm-hmm. They're, they're both right. Uh, Gan So that's the first issue that they're facing, trying to get people's attention on the sport. But beyond that, the idea that Chinese tend to shy away from contact sports, I think that might have been true a few years ago. But now with the current climate and the current attitude, you have the government cracking down on sissy boys, on this idea of sissy boys, and they want men to be men. And you're starting to see more and more parents that want to see their kids, want to see their boys not be afraid to, to, to rough it up a little bit. And so you are slowly, I, th- I believe you're starting to, you, we will slowly start seeing a trend to contact sports becoming more and more interesting. I know the parents of the kids that used to that play at hockey when I was in working with young in Shanghai, they love the physicality. They love to see their kids getting, getting into the corners and, and pushing the other kids around a little bit. And, and then they'd get into it in the stands, right? The parents would start pushing them, pushing each other around in the stands as well. So they were really getting into this whole idea of hockey parents as well. The NFL, they've been operating in China since I think 2007, 2000, 2006, 2007. And it's been a, wrong, a long, tough slog for them. But they're doing it the right way for the long develop, long-term development where they're focusing on the grassroots and trying to get people playing it and understanding it while at the same time working on their media deals and trying to get more exposure online through Tencent and, and more, more airtime on CCTV. And, and then sooner or later, this is the whole tipping point idea where they will reach that point where there will be some sort of traction for the sport. The issue, the real issue with it though, is that it's just so foreign to China, right? They, they just don't really, and the, the rules are complex and it's difficult to understand unless you've grown up around it. So there's a big learning curve that it's, ta- it's going to take time and it has taken time and it's going to continue to take time for it. But I wouldn't count it out. I wanted to move it over to the back to the NBA because I think the NBA is, is a success compared to the other professional sports here. Maybe there's still a lot of potential that they haven't tapped yet. But a lot of people attribute that success to the fact that Yao Ming came along and made such a splash in the NBA and gave a face to, to the NBA local face here in China. Do you think that's critical for people in China to get really get into a, a foreign sport or not necessarily? Um, I think it helps, but I think that it gets, that his impact is a little bit, personally, I think his impact is a little bit overblown because basketball was popular long before he came along and the NBA had been operating here long before he came along as well. So there was a lot of pieces already in place before he started playing. There's the story of David Stern coming over here in the 80s and sitting outside the office as a CCTV sports waiting for Magua Lee to come out of his office for lunch so he could hand over in person game tapes to be broadcast the following week. For him, for the leader of the NBA, for the commissioner of the NBA to come over and make that kind of commitment on his time and show that respect for, for CCTVs, getting the games onto CCTV really shows that even from the very beginning, the NBA was willing to invest into, into the country and become part of the fabric for basketball in China. Yao Ming, obviously, he probably sped that up in, in terms of raising the popularity, but he's gone. He's retired. He's focused 100% on developing Chinese basketball now, and that's not cutting back on the NBA's popularity. We haven't had another Yao Ming after that, even with Yi Jianlian and all the other players that have come along. Nobody else has reached his kind of level of success. So... You wouldn't, I wouldn't say that he was the reason why the NBA succeeded. He might be accelerated the process a bit, but for, a, for an international sports property to think that all they need is to get a Chinese player playing their sport 
and then there and then the millions will start rolling in. That's a little bit mis, misguided, and and they're going to probably end up in a little bit of disappointment in the end. And I would say, as a counterpoint, you could look at with especially women's tennis, where you know with Lena and some of the other players back you know ten years ago that were achieving really real good success. That didn't really accelerate the popularity of tennis. So Chinese players, local Chinese players, casual players, they might have appreciated her success. But they didn't suddenly then turn on and say, "Okay, now I can only watch the WTA." They love tennis for the sense of tennis, and it was just just a, a byproduct of that, I think, or a successful successful story coming out of that. So, according to some analysts, the Chinese who were, who were born after 1990, so some younger Chinese are pretty confident with China's rise, and I think that's pretty obvious. I, I think that's a natural thing to happen. And supposedly they've developed some affinity for more national brands. Is there any sort of pushback that you've noticed against these sort of Western sports or traditionally Western sports, even if it's a, an organic thing, not overt nationalism or anything like that? So has there been any kind of a pushback against these Western sports or leagues or maybe any sort of initiative just to filter the prospective athletes, these young athletes towards more traditional Chinese and Asian dominated sports, either to potentially solidify that identity of these are the Chinese sports, or maybe just because you've seen so many Chinese athletes become great table tennis players or badminton players. And that's just the, the path that seems like the path of least resistance maybe. With this one, starting first with looking at it from the government side, in October last year, the government released their latest five-year sports development plan, the 14th five-year sports development plan, which outlined 70 different points on how to develop sports in the next five years. And they dedicated one whole section on developing traditional Chinese sports. And that's not even badminton and, and gymnastics and table tennis. That's that's wushu and, and go and really sports or, or some of them are even what we would consider games that's uh, that the government wants to make sure that stays in people's minds and stays with people participating in them so that's in that way there is a real focus from the government on making sure that these traditional chinese sports stay involved in people's daily lives if we look at it from i think from the general public point of view and especially young people i don't think that table tennis badminton those are ones i think that they probably look at more for fitness rather than something that they want to spend a lot of time developing as a commercial on in a commercial way or following in a commercial way i know that when i was at the university we had to within the sports park we had some space reserved for for you for students activities and we also worked on building up a new student athletic hall for them as well and table tennis was by far the most demanded sport within those spaces so they weren't so interested in a big fitness gym or dance halls or anything like that. They wanted table tennis tables so they could come out and, and, and play with their friends and have some fun with their friends. So as a participation sport, I think it's really has a, has a continuing presence in everyday life. But if there's a preference, I think, in terms of the NBA or, or watching table tennis on TV, they're going to, most kids are going to choose NBA every single time still. Obviously we have these issues like the Daryl Morey issue with Hong Kong where individuals say certain things that maybe offend China. And in the, today's current climate, those tend to cause ripples. But again, you can see the success of the NBA and, and their long-term strategy, that even after that 
issue happened, their broadcasts were cut off of CCTV from Tencent, but they never missed a CCTV and, and Tencent still made the payments to the league. There's the sponsors that cut back on their support, on their brand, on their advertisements involving NBA. Again, no sponsor actually cut them. They maybe just delayed it, but nobody actually cut the NBA. Compare that to what happened with what's the issues that the EPL from the UK are having with their broadcast rights, where last summer they had some issues with PP Sports when PP Sports and Suning started having trouble with their with their balance line and, and the money that they had, and they defaulted on some payments. And this isn't the first time. I think that you look at the NBA, they've been with Tencent from the very beginning, whereas the EPL is jumping between leagues and between leagues. The NBA has a $4 billion business in China. The EPL has a minuscule amount in comparison. Since obviously a lot of the the conversation is around the NBA as a, so far at least, the de facto uh, winner when it comes to Western leagues having market penetration in China. And you talked about how the way they did it was counterintuitive, not necessarily counterintuitive, didn't necessarily hinge on Yao Ming or Lin Sanity or anything like that as far as representation, Chinese representation in the sport. There are a lot of conversations being held about the importance of representation throughout all different forms of media, sports leagues, corporate context, things like that. When it comes to sports and representation, combat sports come to mind. Because I think fighting of any sorts are always garnered very uh, patriotic fandoms. If you look at somebody like Manny Pacquiao, Conor McGregor, and then with the rise of Zhang Weili, who of course was a Chinese UFC champion, do you think a company like UFC has an advantage over other Western leagues moving forward? It's an individual sport. It's a very, the athletes get a lot of face time. They're representing their country. And then of course, martial arts is such an inherently, such an important tradition in Chinese culture. Do you think that there's any sort of advantage for the UFC in, in getting a market penetration in China? I think that the UFC is a really interesting case study. So this is a great question to explore a little bit into. Their strategy here, I think, has really been quite spot on. They've done a lot of really good moves. The success of Zhang Weili is one thing that's helped them, but it, they've done so much more than that to, to help make sure that the league is successful or that the property is successful. China sports is a, is a government, government entity or, or government body tends to only focus on those sports that are Olympics related, right? Or maybe Asian games related. That again, it's an international competition where they can succeed and, and show the, the strength of the Chinese nation. For the UFC to come in and, and get the success it has shows the, the quality of their strategy. And the biggest, easiest to know reason why that or how their strategy has been executed is with their Shanghai Performance Institute and what they've done with that, where they've taken, they invested themselves $14 million in to build this place and they've created a, a training venue that's in, on par with the best training venues in the world in terms of quality of service and quality of equipment and, and just the overall quality for it. And they built it with the idea of training Chinese athletes to perform in, in UFC, mixed martial arts. But then they've also taken it and they've gone into the Chinese Olympic Committee and they've said, hey, we have this state-of-the-art venue here. We know you are, you're challenged right now to create better quality training facilities for your athletes, why don't you come and use us? Your athletes can come here and purchase and, and take part in the training in our venue, whatever they need to do. And we will make use of our coaches and our nutritionists and our psychologists and everybody else 
to make sure that your Olympic athletes are, are, are training to their peak performance. So in that move, they suddenly went from an out, a sport way outside of the radar of the Chinese Olympic Committee and the General Administration of Sport to becoming a key partner for the development of sports in China. So suddenly now they have their, their best friend in, in, with their arm around them, which is the General Administration of Sport. And the doors that opens for them is massive. And then beyond that, so these Olympic athletes are their training not all of them are going to be quality enough to participate in the Olympics in their sports or else they're going to lose interest or whatever else. And so now they have this huge resource of high performance athletes that maybe wash out of their sports or lose interest in their sport and can be recruited to come in and join the, to join the UFC as MMA fighters. So again, they're getting access to the best quality athletes in China. It's been a brilliant kind of execution on a, a substantial investment for a brand that is just moving into China, but their results on it, I think we're going to just see them growing more and more. I'd actually like to just follow up on that a little bit because between what I'd mentioned about the patriotic fan base that can develop behind a fighter in the UFC or in boxing, that combined with sort of the just the physical aspect, you talked about how some of the hockey parents loved to see their their kids rough it up with some of the other kids. Obviously, for as long as there's been fighting or combat sports, at least, there's been fans who want to see their hometown guy, their hometown, their home country guy or girl beat someone from another country. And it's a point of pride. Do you think that for mixed martial arts, a sport like mixed martial arts, do you think the representation of someone from China instills a net positive to the fans viewing that? Or is there maybe a net negative for the high level of violence? very straightforward violence, not just a physical sport like hockey or, or football. I think that in this particular instance, I think what happened with the success for Zhang Wei Li really, again, accelerated the development of the UFC. And my wife, she doesn't know anything about mixed martial arts or UFC or, or any of the other fighting championships or boxing, but she knows who Zhang, Zhang Wei Li. And so that's just drawn her attention to it. And then again, it gives them more credence and credibility with the state council or with the general administration of sport and, and different governing officials to try and get more benefit out of them and, and just become a bigger part of the fabric. It's a, definitely a positive thing. I don't think that the violence, I don't think that even comes into it because that is what the sport is. And this kind of combat sport isn't something that Chinese people are unfamiliar with. Again, the 14th five-year plan puts Wushu as a major focus for development. They want to see more people fighting. They prefer, obviously, Wushu to mixed martial arts. But in the end, there probably isn't enough difference to qualify, to disqualify. Greg, how do you think the lead up to the Winter Olympics has increased interest in winter sports such as hockey, skiing? Uh, snowboarding, ice skating, of course. And what do you think the lasting impact will be for these sports? I think the Olympics, if in, in, in a COVID-free world, the Olympics would have been a, uh, it would have been just as exciting as 2008, and, and it would have been just as dynamic for winter sports as 2008 was for sports in general. I remember going to the Olympics in 2008, and just as a visitor for a weekend, and I showed up there with no tickets, no hotel room found a hotel room in, in, in a reasonable part of the city, found where the ticket square was and just bought tickets, went to an event, came back, bought tickets, went to an event. I think I saw eight events in three, two and a half days. It was amazing. It was awesome. Going out at night and going to a bar and partying with, the, with athletes that you just saw win a gold medal. It was just, it was outstanding experience. Unfortunately, this year with, with COVID, the, the Olympics themselves won't have that same sort of connection to the general public. They, they just today, they came out and they said no general public ticketing for the sports or for the Olympic Games. So 
the Olympics themselves are going to be disconnected from the general population. But what has been happening for the past couple of years is the government had this whole idea of getting 300 million people participating in winter sports, right? There's a lot of ambiguity in what participation means, but for sure you have people playing knowledgeable, understanding winter sports now more than ever before in China, whether that's because they've actually been out and they're participating in it, or they're seeing it on CCTV, which has been basically a constant feed for the past four months on four or five months on winter sports, or it's whatever else they've, they've connected with their life in winter sports. You had a massive investment in terms of creating the infrastructure for skating, massive investment in terms of creating the infrastructure for skiing, in terms of resorts being built across the, the Northeast and now growing into Xinjiang. And there's a lot more access for people to, to get out and take part in it. And then on top of that, you have all of these resources you have the social unions and you have the state-owned companies and you have the schools organizing their, their members or their employees or their kids to go out and, and take part in these, in these resources or, or join, use these resources. We'll see what happens after the, the Olympics end and the, the central government starts shifting its focus to the next challenge that it wants to take on. How much investment is going to stay in there? How much participation is going to keep getting driven? But whatever it is, there's a seed there now that, that wasn't there five years ago. Hey, Greg, you've been a fantastic guest. And I think people listening are going to be blown away by the, the knowledge you have of all the different sports here and also the different the markets that, that those sports create here and how people are participating in those sports. Yeah. Thanks again, Greg, for coming onto the show. I think there's a lot of interesting insights and little nuggets of information there as we head towards the Winter Olympics in Beijing. Of course, on behalf of myself and Art, we'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of Ganbei. Ganbei.